Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Well, it's been another turbulent week in British politics, and on Sunday night, the scandal over the treatment of Caribbean migrants who came to Britain after the Second World War, known as the Windrush Generation, resulted in the resignation of Home Secretary Amber Rudd. What are the implications for Theresa May's accident-prone government? That's a question I'll be putting in a moment to Dennis Staunton. And I'll be talking to Guy Hedgeco in Madrid about the protests that have rocked Spain in the wake of a controversial verdict in a rape trial in Pamplona. A pledge to those from the Windrush generation who have been in this country for decades and yet have struggled to navigate through the immigration system. The new British Home Secretary, Sajid Javid, speaking in the House of Commons on Monday. He promised to do everything it takes to put right the Windrush scandal. Learning about the difficulties Windrush migrants have faced over the years has impacted me greatly, particularly because I myself am a second-generation migrant. Dennis Staunton is our London editor. Dennis, we talked about this story on the podcast two weeks ago, and I asked you then if this was a controversy that was likely to blow over quickly, and you said no, it had the look of a serious political crisis about it. Is the crisis over now? I think it probably is uh, is coming to an end, although it's, uh, I, I, I'm not entirely certain about that. I think the appointment of Sajid Javid certainly helps to defuse uh, or take some of the poison out of it, because as you heard him say there, he comes from an immigrant family. His father and mother came from Pakistan. His father um, was a bus driver. He comes from a very modest background. And so he can say with some authority uh, when Diane Abbott, his opposite number on the Labour front bench, talks about her anger, you don't have a monopoly on anger on all of this. So that in that sense, he's a better face for dealing with this crisis. The other thing that he has going for him is that he's got a history of being independent of Theresa May to the point of actually being pretty hostile towards her. Uh, they've never had a very comfortable relationship. And after the last election, uh, when uh, it came to the post-mortem, he was apparently uh, among the most brutal in terms of pointing the blame at Theresa May and the way she ran Downing Street, the way in which uh, her various henchmen used to operate. And so uh, he's, he's somebody who may be in a position to uh, to be a bit more independent in the way that he condu- conducts immigration policy. And certainly he'll be able to change the tone. Where there may be some risk still for Theresa May is that uh, as each day goes by, more and more comes out about how much she knew, how much of all of this stuff went back to her time as Home Secretary. She was Home Secretary for six years before she uh, became Prime Minister. And she is one of the very few people in the Cabinet who's absolutely committed to a very hardline policy on immigration, to reaching this target of bringing immigration down below 100,000, which most people think is just unrealistic. And even if it was realistic, it makes no sense. And just today, this afternoon in the Evening Standard, there's a story about uh, the fact that she vetoed an easing of visa rules, which would have allowed more doctors in for the NHS. The way the system works here is that they've got a, a quota every month that they can bring a certain number of people in. And there was, uh, because of a kind of a winter crisis in the NHS, they needed more doctors. And so the uh, the NHS said, can we just, you know, bend the rules for this month? And uh, she vetoed that and said no. And uh, at the uh, the lobby briefing uh, this afternoon, the uh, her spokesman wouldn't deny that she had actually done that veto. So, so I think that there is still some danger for her around the entire immigration thing and just the way in which she approaches it. But I do think that the replacement of Amber Rudd 
uh, with uh, Sajid Javid probably does help. In fact, I heard a quote last night from an unnamed MP who said Amber Rudd had fallen on Theresa May's sword. Um, what was it in the end that, that did for, for Rudd? I mean, this went on for two weeks. And what was, what was it that finally tripped her up? What really tripped her up was that she kept uh, having to revise her answers to questions. So she was uh, at a, a select committee uh, in Parliament and Yvette Cooper said, uh, so when did you introduce targets for the number of people you were going to deport, illegal immigrants? And uh, Amber said, oh, there are no targets. And then she had to come back and say, I'm sorry, I now realize, in fact, there have been local targets, but I wasn't aware of them. And then a letter uh, was produced to show that, in fact, she had been aware of them, or at least it was brought to her attention. And it seems that she was preparing to go into uh, the House of Commons yesterday, Monday afternoon. And over the weekend, more documentation appeared as they went through a trawl of documents, which she would have had to explain even further, which again pointed to her either misleading parliament, which she said she did inadvertently, or simply not actually knowing what was going on in her department. And either way, it seems that she just felt she couldn't go on. Now, as you mentioned there, the new Home Secretary, Sajid David, made, um, he made much of the fact um, on Monday that he is himself the son of Pakistani immigrants. Um, does his appointment then, do you think, single, signal sorry, a fundamental change in the Conservative government's approach to immigration? Well, not entirely. But, uh, but having said that, uh, you know, Theresa May, as I mentioned, is quite isolated, even within her own cabinet in terms of her uh, hardline approach to immigration. So if you look at, say, even some of the Brexiteers, people like uh, Michael Gove and Boris Johnson, they actually believe in uh, in a liberal immigration policy. And so what they would say is that uh, while you shouldn't have free movement from the European Union, you shouldn't discriminate one way or another. You should just be able to, to bring in as many people as the economy requires. Whereas Theresa May takes this uh, more uh, almost cultural approach to immigration that she feels as if the Conservative Party has to be responsive to those of their voters who simply don't feel comfortable with high levels of immigration, regardless of the economic case for it. Now, Sajid Javid takes a very different approach, partly because of his own background, but also he's an interesting and unusual person politically because he is uh, one of the last of the pure Thatcherite free market uh, enthusiasts. And so, for example, one of the curious features about him is that every Christmas, he apparently recites the courtroom scene from Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. Now, this, uh, for those uh, who are not familiar with these uh, sacred texts of libertarianism, this courtroom scene is a kind of a manifesto for an extreme individualistic approach to, uh, to public life and to how the, how the world ought to be run. Look at history. Everything we have, every great achievement has come from the independent work of some independent mind. Every horror and destruction came from attempts to force men into a herd of brainless, soulless robots. That you should essentially follow your selfish instincts and that society ends up better off for that rather than trying to take a more paternalistic approach. So that he has this really quite, uh, you know, nowadays very unusual Thatcherite approach and quite an unsentimental approach where, where politics is concerned. He's essentially a numbers guy. He, uh, he grew up in uh, very modest circumstances, went to a comprehensive school, and then got into banking 
and made a lot of money as a merchant banker. He was at one stage apparently earning three million a year before he went into politics. And so uh, he's somebody who, although he is a Muslim by birth, he is not uh, religious and he is somebody who feels very comfortable uh, you know, outside any kind of identity politics and, you know, mixing with all kinds of different people. He is, in, in, in a way, in Theresa May's words, a citizen of nowhere or somebody who could be a citizen of nowhere. And so in that sense, he brings a very different attitude to uh, to immigration. And he was a remainder in the Brexit referendum, but a kind of soft remainder. He's a, he's a Eurosceptic, isn't he? Yes. In fact, he was, uh, you know, he was really known as quite a, an enthusiastic Eurosceptic and in, in indeed protested against Mrs. Thatcher uh, years ago when uh, she brought Britain into the European exchange rate mechanism, which is kind of the forerunner of the euro. And so it was something of a surprise when uh, he uh, decided to back remain rather than leave. Now, it was put down to a few motives, some of which were lofty, some of which were less so. The respectable motive was that he apparently, having done his numbers, decided actually the economic cost of leaving the European Union outweighed whatever potential benefits there might be. But the other uh, baser motive was that he was something of a protege of George Osborne. At the time, George Osborne was chancellor, was widely expected to be the successor to David Cameron, and that could have been a fast track to higher office for uh, Sajid Javid. So anyway, as soon as the referendum, he wasn't a particularly enthusiastic or active campaigner for Remain, and as soon as the referendum happened, he immediately said, well, this is the will of the people. And since then, he has allied himself very much with the hard Brexiteers. And so even just uh, a few days ago, he was tweeting that uh, remaining in a customs union would be the worst of all possible worlds because it would mean that Britain wasn't in a position to really properly exercise its sovereignty or to exploit the opportunities that even the European Union might bring. So what are the implications then of this change in the, in the senior ranks for the government's Brexit strategy? Amber Rudd was a strong and powerful and authoritative voice within the cabinet for a soft Brexit. And she had a very powerful alliance with the Chancellor, uh, Philip Hammond, uh, in, in forming a bloc which was uh, essentially putting economic interests and the interests of business ahead of, uh, of, of the ideas of sovereignty. And so uh, the fact that Saji Javid has uh, replaced her shifts the balance over towards the Michael Gove, Liam Fox, David Davis, uh, Boris Johnson Brexit wing. And so tomorrow on Wednesday, there is a meeting of the Cabinet Brexit subcommittee, which is going to discuss the various options on customs after uh, Britain leaves the European Union. And there are two options which uh, Theresa May has proposed. They've been on the table since last August. And one of these is a customs partnership, which uh, the idea would be that Britain would collect uh, customs um, would collect tariffs on behalf of the European Union and uh, then apply its own tariffs to goods that are remaining in Britain. And then the other one is called a customs arrangement and uh, and this customs arrangement would mean that they would try to they would still have customs controls, but they try to use technology and various things like trusted trader schemes to kind of make customs controls less intrusive. Now, the Brexiteers would like to take the first option off the table because what they fear is that this could end up 
being something of a slippery slope towards remaining in the customs union. What they particularly fear is that the system is actually unworkable and that the, the remainers know it's unworkable and that what will happen will be that uh, they would say, OK, let's go for this system. But in the meantime, while we're getting the whole thing to work, we remain in the customs union. And because it's never going to work, they end up in the customs union forever. And what about Amber Rudd then? She goes to the back benches. Might she be a thorn in the government side then? Is she likely to sort of join the the rebellious wing of the party that has been causing so much trouble for Theresa May from the backbenches? She could be. It really depends on what uh, what she wants. At the end of, uh, you know, they have, all, as always, these exchanges of letters when somebody resigns. And at the end of Theresa May's letter accepting her resignation, uh, there was a kind of a line saying, looking forward to seeing you back here soon. Uh, you know, an implication being that, you know, she could have an early return to the cabinet. Uh, so that might you know, be an inhibiting factor if she thinks that, you know, um, she might get back into the cabinet and she doesn't want to become too awkward. The other problem that she has is that she's got uh, a majority of 300 and something votes in a constituency which voted for Brexit. And so she uh, may fear that if she became a prominent rebel, that that could also put her seat even in greater danger than it is now. On the other hand, she might just decide if she does go back into the cabinet that she's not going to go back in in one of the great offices of state, like the home office, which she just occupied, that she's damaged goods in any case, and that actually she might as well go with what she believes. And certainly she would be a very useful addition to the rebel army because apart from anything else, she knows where all the Brexit bodies are buried because until Sunday, she was involved in all of the major decision-making about Brexit. A politician who goes with what she believes, but we'll, we'll, we'll see how that transpires. But on the subject, Dennis, of Brexit, um, there was a, another, another House of Lords vote went against the government on Monday. Can you tell us something about that and what the significance of that vote was? It's a very important vote. It was the ninth defeat that the government has had in the House of Lords on the EU withdrawal bill, which is the, the bill that's supposed to get everything ready for withdrawal. So it, uh, it, it repeals the, uh, uh, the Parliamentary Act that brought Britain into the European Union, and then it transfers all EU laws into, into British law, uh, so they'll all be ready on Brexit Day. But the Lords have attached a number of amendments to it, and this particular one said that uh, when any deal is done, before it can be signed off on, that Theresa May will have to come back to the House of Commons and the House of Commons will have to decide, A, do they want to accept that deal? But if they don't want to accept that deal, that they can have another option beyond just having no deal. Because what the government has been saying is, OK, Parliament, you will have a vote on the deal. But if you reject the deal, then it means we leave the European, without, the European Union without a deal. What the Lords have said in this amendment is, no, there have to be other options and Parliament then has to be able to take control of the process and tell you what you're going to do if it rejects the, the current deal. And it also says you've got to actually get all this done, bring all this to Parliament before the European Parliament, which also has to ratify any withdrawal agreement, before they get their hands on it so that whatever uh, agreement goes to the European Parliament is one that we, the uh, British Parliament, accept. So the uh, government has reacted very, very strongly to this this morning and said they will have a very robust response. The question is, uh, will, uh, the, will the MPs decide that they actually want to take this power for themselves? Will there be enough Conservative rebels to join the opposition to say that? Or will Parliament say, 
here's an opportunity to take control of the Brexit process, but we're not going to. I presume, then, it's one of the arguments the government makes against this approach is that it does weaken their hand in negotiations with the EU, doesn't it? Well, that's what they're saying. What they're saying is that what you're telling Michel Barnier is uh, go for a no deal, because uh, basically if you if you tell uh, the UK government uh, we can't agree to a deal, or indeed if you insist that the deal they go back with is the worst deal possible, that then the British Parliament is going to reject it. And that could mean, uh, you know, uh, the Britain agreeing to stay in the European Union or a little bit longer, or indeed to agree to terms which are which involve a closer relationship, which might be on Europe's terms. So that's one argument. They also say that, um, you know, basically you're showing your hand. And, you know, if Parliament is able to decide the negotiating mandate, then the other side knows what you're looking for. The counter argument to that is that the European Union has given a public mandate to the European Commission in its negotiations. So everybody knows what they're looking for. And that transparency doesn't seem to have stopped the European Union getting the better of the negotiations so far. So um, so I, I think it will be, um, certainly it'll be argued out Jeremy Corbyn has said this morning that he's definitely going to back it, uh, this amendment. And some of the Tory rebels have been out saying they think it's a good idea and they're encouraging the government to come up with its own amendment, which would uh, which would essentially mean the same thing. And so it really just remains to be seen uh, how the numbers stack up in the end. But this is uh, an amendment, if it goes through, that really could change the, uh, the the progress and the course of the Brexit negotiations much more than almost anything else that has so far gone through, including any amendments about the customs union, which possibly the government could get out of or could fire, you know, wriggle, wriggle out of. But if you give uh, MPs a really meaningful vote and effectively hand them control of the negotiating process, then that's a really big game changer in terms of Brexit negotiations. The sound there of one of the many protests in Spain in recent days over the decision of a court last week to find five men not guilty of the rape of an 18-year-old woman during the San Fermines Bull Running Festival in Pamplona in 2016. The men were given nine-year jail sentences for sexual abuse. For more on this story, Guy Hedgeco joins me now from Madrid. Guy, this was a pretty horrifying case. Can you fill us in first on the background to the case itself? Yes, well, it, it took place, as you say, during the bull running festival in, in Pamplona in the summer of 2016. Uh, these five young men from Seville were at the festival and uh, they came across this 18-year-old uh, woman who was on her own in the early hours of the morning in the city. And uh, they led her to a doorway. Um, there was no one else about where um, they had sex with this 18-year-old. Um, they claim it was consensual. She says it was not. Um, and then she was found um, shortly afterwards in a distraught state on a bench nearby. Um, and the, uh, due to her testimony to the police, um, those five men were arrested shortly afterwards. I should point out that they also filmed much of the encounter on mobile phones and shared it among themselves and among friends as well. Um, and some of that footage was used um, in court as evidence uh, during the, the trial itself. Um, so those are sort of the, the basics of the case. And um, the defendants, as you said, they filmed, some of them filmed 
the attack and they shared the, the film on, on a WhatsApp group, which they, they call themselves La Manada or the Wolf Pack. Um, so that it's kind of added to the kind of ghastliness, really, of the details, didn't it? Yeah, yes, it did completely. Um, they, they, they sort of earned this nickname themselves in the media as the Wolf Pack. I mean, it was a nickname that they, they essentially given themselves. But that sort of added to the, the, the sort of the, the, the tension surrounding this case for many people, the, the notoriety of the, the five men involved. And there was a huge amount of, of media attention on it, partly due to details like that and due to the fact that they filmed it on their phones. Um, and also because a lot of details of the case seem to be appearing in the media in the build up to the trial itself and then during the trial. Um, and I think also this fed into concerns about the uh, the San Ferminas, the running of the Bulls Festival as well. There have been um, a number of sexual assaults in recent years there. Um, and this seemed to be a you know, particularly striking and worrying um, incidence of, of yet another sexual assault there. Normally, Guy, a case like this in, in Ireland certainly would be held before a jury. Was that the case here? No, it wasn't. It was a panel of judges um, in um, the Pamplona local court. So it was the the, the court in the, the city where the attack took place. Um, and uh, it was a panel of judges um, and they had to decide between them um, and, and rule on it. Interestingly, one of the judges did not agree with uh, his colleagues and he actually felt that all five men should have been absolved, not just of the rape charges, but of all sexual assault, sexual abuse charges um, altogether. He felt they should have been let off. And the only thing that they should have or any of them should have been charged with was the theft of the young woman's uh, phone, which they one of them had taken away from her. Um, so the, the, the one dissenting uh, vote of that judge um, really um, has really focused the anger of a lot of people who've been, you know, who were already outraged about this case. But in particular, I think people have been outraged by that one dissenting vote by that judge. And on what grounds, Guy, did they, it was a majority verdict then, as you say, but on what grounds did the judges decide it was not a case of rape, but a case of, of sexual abuse? What's the difference there in Spanish law? Well, in Spanish law, it, it, it all hinges on whether or not there was violence or intimidation um, when the sexual encounter took place. Um, and so what the, the judges decided was that there was neither violence nor intimidation. Now, I think many people following this case uh, perhaps felt um, you know, it made sense. Perhaps there was not violence from what they'd heard. But I think what angered many people was the idea that there was not intimidation because, strangely enough, the, the, the judges seemed to accept um, the testimony of this young woman. They seemed to, they didn't seem to cast any doubt on that. They seemed to believe her completely in their ruling. Um, but it, it seems to have come down to the letter of the law. Um, now, for example, I'm quoting here, they said that, that she did not freely offer her consent. Um, they said she was co coerced or pressured by the situation. Those are the words of the, uh, the court itself. And yet they felt it was not rape. So, um, a lot of the anger here has been directed certainly at the judges in the case, but there's also a feeling that perhaps Spanish law is not equipped to handle uh, cases like this one. So how quickly then did the protests 
began and how widespread have they been? Well, they began almost immediately because we knew when the, the ruling was going to come out on Thursday. We knew more or less uh, the, the, the timing of the ruling. Um, so Thursday lunchtime, the ruling was made. And you know, within a couple of hours, there were people out on the streets. There were demonstrations in Pamplona where the, the, the court case took place outside the courthouse. Um, but also here in Madrid, outside the Justice Ministry, um, and in cities across Spain, um, you know, there, there were tens of thousands of people in total, I think you could say, over the course of Thursday, Friday, and then into Saturday, um, demonstrating against this. On Saturday, we had an extraordinary sight in uh, Osasuna Football Stadium, that's the, the local team in Pamplona, where football fans at a home game in the second division uh, suddenly started chanting uh, in favor of the victim of the attack during the football game. And they, they issued this chant, it's not abuse, it's rape. Um, so that was just yet another um, another angle on, on these demonstrations. But we've also seen them in, in other cities. There have been Spaniards, for example, expatriates in other cities, in, I believe in Dublin and London and Paris as well, who have uh, staged smaller demonstrations in recent days as well. And that chant guy, I think it's not abuse, its rape was also what we heard in the the, the clip we heard at the at the outset of of the item here. Just just to ask you, guy. I mean, whenever we have, um, you know, certainly again in Ireland, if we have a controversial sentence or verdict, especially in a case involving a sex crime or an, or an alleged sex crime, the argument is often made that while well, the people protesting, they weren't in court, they didn't hear the evidence, they don't know the full story. Is that is anybody making that argument in Spain about this case? Yes, I mean, there certainly have been, and and. The, the associations of judges, magistrates have come out to defend the court. Um, now I should point out also politicians have been um, speaking out, uh, being very critical of of the sentence as well. You know, all the leaders of the the main opposition parties um, have have been critical of it. The government um, as well, uh, to a certain extent. Um, now, the uh, associations of, of magistrates have come out to defend, you know, their colleagues, essentially saying these, uh, um, that, you know, these uh, judges were simply following the rule. They did what they had to do. Um, but and one association, you know, issued a very firmly uh, worded statement saying that, you know, the people out on the street simply don't understand what's going on. You know, this is like the Wild West. You know, w we are following the, the law here. These people don't understand the law. But there has been an interesting sort of subplot to all this because I, I mentioned the reaction of the Spanish government um, in recent days and the justice minister, Rafael Catalá, uh, has been perhaps most outspoken on this issue, as you might expect, given his portfolio. And he actually um, spoke out quite strongly in one interview about the, that judge who issued the, the dissenting vote, the judge who believed that all five of the defendants should have been absolved altogether, a man called Ricardo Gonzalez. And the, the justice minister in one interview said, we all know that judge has some kind of special problem, sort of casting aspersions on his, on his mental health or, or, or uh, his character. And that has caused a huge storm. And there have been demands for uh, the justice minister to resign from uh, judges associations in the wake of that interview. Um, and Guy, we've we had these kind of watershed moments all over the world now in recent months as kind of broadly under the banner of the Me Too movement where women are calling out men and calling out society and calling out institutions of all kinds over their, their treatment of women. I, I presume these protests are kind of seen in that context, are they? 
Yes, very much. I mean, I mean, you know, Spain, you know, it did sort of witness the Me Too movement, but perhaps for, you know, for linguistic reasons and cultural reasons, it wasn't, uh, we didn't see it um, quite as sort of close up, perhaps, as, as it was seen, in, you know, in places like Ireland and the United States and Britain. Um, and now I think this particular court case and the backlash against it is sort of unleashing something um, rather similar. Um, and you know, today, for example, we're seeing the, the first of May um, the celebrations and demonstrations, and what we always, we always see demonstrations su- supporting workers and the rights of workers on this date. And today, what's also being uh, defended by people who are out on the street are the rights of women, and that's not normally something you see on the first of May. Um, and uh, we've seen a big uh, reaction online. Um, on Twitter, for example, um, of Spanish women um, talking about uh, sexual harassment. Um, the the Spanish public broadcaster RTVE. Um, this is not is not directly linked, but I think there is um, some kind of connection um, in that female workers at the the broadcaster have been complaining about when they have been pressured by their superiors to manipulate the news. And that's just started in the last few days. And I think that. Uh, has some kind of link to all of this. Um, so I think we're probably seeing the beginning of of a phenomenon here in Spain. So there's a sense here, Guy, that this may be the start of actually something bigger, a bigger change in Spain. Yes, I, I think it's looking like that. And I think um, this certainly you know, feeds into the idea of, um, you know, of equality for women, of fighting back against um, uh, you know, sexual harassment in the workplace and so on. Um, what we saw with, with the Me Too movement. I also think... It, you know, there's another repercussion here in, in that this is um, undermining the credibility um, of the judiciary, the Spanish judiciary, which has already been an, under something of a cloud um, in recent months for a number of cases, partly due to the uh, the Catalan crisis. You know, the Catalan independence movement does like to uh, cast the Spanish judiciary in a very negative light. Um, and I think this certainly feeds into that. And I think a lot of Spaniards have had their faith in the uh, in their judiciary shaken by this particular case. Guy, um, we'll leave it there for now. Thanks a lot for that. Thanks a lot, Chris. Pleasure. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.